Come now, you rich, weep. How for your misery that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you've kept back from fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you become condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brother, take the prophets whom spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard the perseverance of Job and have seen at the end indeed by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath, but let your yeses be yes and your noes be no, lest you fall into judgment. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this letter. Lord, these five chapters, we ask that you would help them to go deep into our souls, that truly they would uh, renew our minds, that transformation would take place because your word has been preached. Father, we 
corporately submit to you, your authority, and the word that we have read this morning. And we ask that you would have your way for you and you alone, our God, our King, our Lord of Lords, our Savior. And we say yes and amen to what the Spirit has to say this morning. We pray in your precious name. All God's children said, amen, amen. Up until this point, James has developed the idea of the need for complete and utter dependence on God. And he now chooses to rebuke the most likely to live independently from God, the rich. James, um, as, as you, I don't know if you know this, but the book of James parallels um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you read James, you're like, wow, James ripped off Jesus' message. <laughs> he did. Matter of fact, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 because I'm going to read Matthew chapter 6. It's a summary of what we just read in regards to riches. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus in summary, is not saying to be rich is wrong, but to be seeking treasures outside of the true treasure of we know who that is. Who is our true treasure? Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that he is the treasure, that we're to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that all other things would be added unto us. Right? He says that Later in Matthew chapter 6, he's wanting us to have a kingdom perspective in regards to monetary means or riches or possessions. It's not wrong to have possessions. It's not wrong to be rich. Matter of fact, I'm, a, I'm assuming that some of you, when this opening line in verse 5, back in James uh, verse 1, come now you rich, you just like, okay, this is excluding me because I'm poor. <laughs> well, globally speaking, you are very rich. If you're a homeless person living in Carpinteria, you are rich. If you compare it to the world, if you compare it to what's going on in Ethiopia, we are all rich in this room. We cannot exclude ourselves from the text that is wanting us to heed the message that treasures that are sought after need to be removed from the throne of our hearts and the true treasure needs to be placed on the throne of our hearts the treasure of Jesus Christ. We cannot rely and depend on riches. We cannot find our comfort in riches or in clothing, 
you know, you read this text the, talking about the corrupted garments and that are moth-eaten. Is it wrong to have expensive jeans? That's between you and your God. Ask him. I'm not going to say it's wrong, but what I'm going to tell you is I think as believers, we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. Because stewardship also is a lesson to be learned in this text. Not only as Jesus being the true treasure is the lesson, but stewardship. I think of the parable of the talents as the landowner gives one servant five talents, another two talents, and one he gives one. Then he goes away and he comes back, and we know the story. Uh, the one with five had doubled his talents, and he now had ten talents. And then the one with two, he had four talents. He also had doubled the talents. And the one with one talent was a bad steward of that one talent, and what happened? The Lord rebuked him and even took away the talent and gave it to the one with ten talents. And there's actually a couple of uh, application points there, one being that if you note, the talents that were gained by the servants weren't for personal gain. The one with five talents gained another five talents for the purpose of the owner. And those five talents that were given to him weren't even his. They were belonging to who? The landowner, who is pictured as our father. Stewardship, what we have been given, blessings that have been given to us are not for the sake of us, they're for the sake of others and the glory of God. Amen? That's a kingdom perspective that I believe God would want us to have this morning is that the talents or the, the possessions or the goods that we have are for the purpose of the kingdom and others. Blessing others. But what we also learn about the talents is, hey, the bottom line is one guy got five, the other got two, and one had one. In this room, there's some who have one talent, five talents, ten talents. Some of you have 20 talents. God bless you, but be good stewards and don't rely, depend, and find comfort in those things. Because everything we know in this world ultimately will burn. It's a good reminder that the Lord would give us this morning. And it's also a good reminder to be um, given and really drawn into that kingdom perspective that it's about others and the glory of God, not the hoarding of things. I, I take this quote and it's a four-liner from Charles Spurgeon. Look what he says. Giving is true having. What a kingdom perspective there. Giving is true having. The joy of giving is joyful because it's right and biblical. It's better to give than to receive. Amen, church? 
That's the kingdom mindset. That is why I believe up until this point, James has wonderfully given us great contrast of a kingdom perspective. And he's doing that right here in regards to um, riches. He's wanting us to have a kingdom perspective to get back on track to be realigned, so to speak, an alignment. He's given us these great contrasts of kingdom principles versus earthly wisdom. And he's done so with great intensity, right? When you read the book of James, there's an intensity behind it. I love how Tim uh, Chaddock, our first week, he, he said, the book of James is like a list from your mom. On her way out to get groceries, she just gives you a list. Here, this, this, and this, and this, and that. Al, a couple weeks ago, he referred to the book of James uh, approach was like the ground and pound approach. I like to call it the fist of fury, the Bruce Lee style. <laughs> he comes out and, he, I mean, he's throwing kicks and karate chops just unbelievable beyond elbows. This guy... James has an intensity in his writing, and there's a purpose behind it. There's a purpose behind it, and I've seen where the turning point is right here in verse 7. It says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit on the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also, reader, you also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The mission of God has been set in motion. We can't play games by arguing with one another and allowing our tongues to be set on fire. We can't be crying when we're in suffering. James has given us the contrast to get us back on track so that we're on course for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is standing at the door and he's wanting that there's this intensity because he's saying, people... The kingdom of God is at hand. We can't be playing games. And so what he's done in this contrast is he's getting us aligned. You ever had a car out of alignment? Maybe you, maybe you don't know that you do and it's not good. Just so you know, it's not good for your car. <laughs> at a certain speed, it wobbles. Or when you brake and, and it shifts and your car's out of alignment... Uh, some people like I'm turning left and it's almost going right. When your car is out of alignment, it's really bad for your tires. It's really bad for your car. So you go into the tire store and you have them get it aligned. And by getting it aligned, now your car can function the way it was made to function. James wonderfully is getting us aligned so that we function the way God had intended us to function as his children, to function for the purpose of his kingdom, the mission of God. 
And he wonderfully says, and, and, and this is my prayer, is that we would be patient and establish our hearts for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's like he wants to broaden our perspective to have a kingdom perspective, a kingdom mindset. Not grumbling against one another because at least we be condemned as it says here. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus comes as a judge not only to judge the world but also to assess the faithfulness of his children. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We cannot involve ourselves, we can't involve ourselves in earthly wisdom, worldly ways. Like Paul Exhorting us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to be being transformed by the renewing of our mind. How does that take place? How do we gain the mind of Christ? Through the perfect law of liberty. That's what it says back here in James 1. It's like a mirror. And when we look into the perfect law of liberty, what is it doing? It's revealing to us where we're in error for the purpose of what? Just to make us feel condemned? Never. It's always for the purpose of the kingdom. We look into the law of liberty so that it shaves and cuts away the things that would hinder us from being potent for the kingdom of God. So we don't look in it and then walk away and forget what we look like. No, we look into it and it shows and reveals and then we deal with what God has revealed to us through his perfect law of liberty. If we're desiring to have the mind of Christ or allow the renewing of our minds, it's all found right here in the word of Christ. Amen? This is where we get the kingdom perspective. This is where we get the mind of Christ. This is where we find God's will for our lives. But we must remember something. That the solution to the great contrast as James is rebuking us and revealing to us the kingdom principles versus worldly wisdom or not conforming to the world but being transformed, we have to realize that the solution is found supernaturally. It's not you trying harder or self-help, right? Because the tongue says... That it, the word says that the tongue cannot be tamed by man. Everywhere else we err, the solution to kingdom principles is required kingdom power. And I fear that the church often is trying to just get her done. We're trying harder. 
where that's not the case. That's not why James has given us this great contrast. He's doing so so that we see that where our solution or our resolve is, is found in Christ Jesus in prayer. Spiritual living requires spiritual power. That's why we see the second half of this chapter, its emphasis is in what? Prayer. Just like Paul finishes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the writer of Hebrew finishes with the emphasis being in prayer. Prayer, my brothers and sisters, positions us where we need to be when we're found in error. And that's humble and crying out to God. Not I need to fix this or I can do this or I can get her done. I think we would all find a testimony that we've tried it on our own and on our own we seem to fail. Amen? And yet we find that in the book of James, I love how it's like the transition. Chapter 5, the transition, in my opinion, is right here in verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, and we're to gain this kingdom perspective in regards to the contrast that is taking place. We're to ask the Lord, where do we fall short? Where have we uh, strayed? Where have we gone uh, awry or in error? Because now he gives us the great solution. Verse 13 is, any among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing songs. That word suffering, endure, enduring hardship, suffering trouble, enduring affliction, being afflicted. If that's you, friends, this morning, then let's pray. Matter of fact, it says, is any among you suffering, let him pray. Meaning, you who are suffering. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word here, sick, is physical weakness. Maybe there's a physical weakness that you've been dealing with that's hindering, because understand, this is all for the purpose that may be hindering you from the mission of God. Because we don't pray for healing for the sake of healing. There's a purpose behind it, right? And that purpose being the kingdom of God. But maybe there are some of you who are physically weak were to call for the pastors or the elders. The New Testament uses the term bishop, elders, pastors interchangeably. The Greek word there is episkopos, an overseer. And in Acts 20, 28, we see the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian church having elders. They were called to shepherd the flock. That wording elders is interchangeable with pastors. Because the pastors, as we see today, 
are called to do just that, shepherd the flock. So I have asked our pastoral staff, who we would see as our elders, to position themselves to be ready to lay hands and anoint oil for those who are sick or physically weak. As we lay hands and we anoint with oil, the oil is symbolic, an outward physical expression of the Holy Spirit. We see that this is what the disciples did in Mark 6, 13. They anointed people with oil. God has called us this morning to respond in an applicational, not, even, not just a message, but the whole book of James is just oozes application. It would be error and wrong and stupid of us to not allow application this morning in preparing our hearts to pray, to come forward, and to be anointed with oil. But not just for physical ailments. Verse 15 says, And the prayer and faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And as if he's commanded, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Listen, the prayer of faith, I want to make sure we don't err in that terminology. We don't pray in faith for faith, or we don't have faith in faith. Our faith is in God. Amen? Our faith is in God, and as a result of God's power, we see healing throughout Scripture. We see healing throughout history. Does God always heal? We also can testify that God doesn't always heal. Paul, often an example of that. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, he being Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, saying to Paul, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God chooses sometimes to not heal, but understand this. What Paul is saying is God is still working. It's not that he's sleeping or doesn't desire. It's because he's got a greater plan. And oftentimes, we get caught up in our own timetables and we miss and don't trust in God's sovereignty. God can heal directly and immediately. I believe that. God can heal through natural process of the bodies that he's given us. I've seen that in the knee injury that I had. I did my own uh, rehabilitation by praying and asking the Lord to heal my knee. God can use medical means God can choose not to heal, yet God is still at work, still on the throne, still sovereign. Amen? Yet we're to pray expecting God to work. We're told to pray, trust, and we're told to seek God for healing, so we should pray expecting him to work. This should always be our first priority, but often we forget. Whatever your issue is, prayer should always be the priority. Before going to the doctor, before even crying to your wife, you should cry out to your God. And then include your wife in prayer, and then if need be, then you go to the doctor. 
Prayer should always be priority. My personal conclusion is that we should pray in faith, expecting God to move and leave it into his hands and his sovereignty. There's times that I pray for people over here for physical healing, spiritual healing, and whenever they leave, I trust and believe that God will have his way. It's his church. It's his problem. It's his. Because in the end, the Lord is the Lord. He is God. The Lord will heal however and whenever he wishes. The power of prayer is the power of God. And it says here, he who has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James further demonstrates the scope that he has in mind here that both physical and spiritual healing is offered in prayer. Prayer for the body, prayer for the soul. Is physical weakness or sickness always a result of sin? No. But if, there, if you have a physical sickness or a physical weakness because of sin, I trust that God will reveal it to you. I don't need to reveal that to you. Matter of fact, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask you, oh, your knee hurts? Well, there's unconfessed sin in your life. That's not my gig. God will reveal to you if you have ailments because of your stupidity. <laughs> For real. But note that he, he, he then goes and he says, for you who've committed sin, we're called to confess. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When we own up to our sins and confess, it removes the burden of unresolved sin in our lives. It removes the hindrances to the work of the Spirit who is wanting to move in our lives. And it brings us back into alignment for the purpose and the glory of God. This type of confession, I'm convinced, creates a humility in the life of the body that is needed. This specific type of confession is corporate for a reason. There's a purpose why James has included this in our text because there's something about corporate confession. When we pray for one another and confess our sins to one another because corporately what it does, it brings a corporate humility that is needed in the church who is so prideful today. And when someone confesses to you, church, be sure that you know and understand that the appropriate response is always prayer, never to be gossip, never to be used as ammunition or condemnation. We're called to pray for one another. The great temptation of the church today is isolation, remaining in your sin. Can you confess your sin to God? Of course. God has made himself available through his son, Jesus Christ. We have that wonderful privilege of doing that in your own little room. 
but why would James give us this corporate setting? Maybe it's because of the accountability that's taking place. Maybe because your confession in your room leaves you continually in your sin because there's an error in your confession for whatever reason, because you're hiding it, because maybe you don't want others to know about it. But guess what, friends? When we confess our sins to one another, it allows not only healing, but accountability and a fervent of prayer. The prayer is called to pray for one another, and then later on, it adds a fervent prayer, continual prayer. It's not a one-shot, bam, you're healed prayer. It's let us continue in prayer for one another. I don't always remember everyone's name in here, but I often remember a face and how I've prayed. And when I see that face again, I continue in that prayer. And I love when some of you come and you say, hey, God has answered this prayer, that prayer that we prayed last week. God has answered that prayer. This corporate setting of gathering and worshiping and reading the word of God should include the prayer and a confession and being real with each other. Because in doing so, God is aligning us for the mission of God. The word healing is translated to be made whole. To be made whole. Don't you want to be healed and set free? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He, excuse me, who himself bore, himself being Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whom, by whom stripes we have been healed. And it speaks of a physical and a spiritual healing. And for that reason, church, we are to remain fervent and frequent in prayer for one another. frequent and fervent in our prayer for one another. How else is this type of corporate prayer going to happen unless it's in this setting? We have home groups. There's other settings where we can be fervent and frequent in our prayer for one another. But friends, God has given us this moment every Sunday. Why wouldn't we take the opportunity to pray for one another, confessing our sins to one another, allowing God to align us so that for the kingdom and the glory of God, we further and get on board in the mission of God for the purpose of God. We've been made righteous by faith in Christ. We're born again. God's righteousness has been imputed on us. That's amazing. Unbelievable that we can say the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What has made us righteous? The righteous one. For what purpose? For what purpose? Just for the purpose of, hey, we're righteous now. No, for the purpose and the glory of God. Remember, it's never about us. It's about others. And it's about him. 
This is done by his grace, his grace working in our hearts. We are shown to be righteous in our prayers. Why would we rob people of prayers that are righteous because of his righteousness? Why would we rob people of praying for one another? Well, I'll tell you why we would. Because of selfishness and pride. Friends, we got to remove. That's one of those wanting to be aligned, I don't know, getting you off track, getting you off the beaten path. That's one of those things that gets in our way. Pride, selfishness. In this setting, we have to remove those things and allow for a greater degree of accountability, a greater degree of God working and moving amongst us. God is wanting to heal us. Why would we rob him of that opportunity to do so? Let's just yield. When there's a call for prayer, friends, you need to beeline and take the opportunity to be realigned and given that Again, eternal perspective. Don't let pride get in the way. We have a privilege in praying. The greatest joy of prayer is not so much that we lay hands on the things that, from God, but that we're able to lay our hands on God. What a privilege that the creation is able, through Christ, to hold on to the creator. Praying without ceasing, brothers and sisters, is to know Christ. That word prayer that's used here in this text, it was often uh, used in classic literature. And it describes petitions addressed to a, a sovereign ruler. We should recognize him as the highest and us as the lowest. Though we are children, though we are adopted, we are nothing and he is everything. Because another thing what, again, what corporate prayer does for us, it sets us in that right position of humility. Yes, we're adopted. Yes, we're more than conquerors. Yes, we are. But we often need to be reminded, less of us, more of you. Your kingdom. I don't want to gather things and gather stuff and, and pour in more treasures in my life. God, my tongue has slipped, my this, my that. As you look throughout the book of James, what he's done is he's, again, revealed to us where we err. Let's take those things now to prayer. As we come to a close, what we're going to do is we're going to have the elders. They're going to be out here. They're going to be ready with oil. We got prayer team members. We got our time of worship. We got the carpet. It's all here just as it was last Sunday. But how will you respond this Sunday? Hopefully, pride doesn't get in your way. Hopefully, that you see the significance in corporate prayer for one another. 
Because did you catch that? Not only is it the elders that are to pray, but it's everyone is to pray. Maybe God would even have you turn to the person next to you and say, hey, hey, how can I pray for you? Because listen to this, and this is what I trip out on. This is unbelievable. And that is in verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heaven uh, gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Understand that Elijah was an amazing, powerful man of God. He called upon fire. He straight clowned the prophets of Baal. I mean, he did amazing things for God. He was lopping off the heads. He did so much for God, for his kingdom, and yet he was a man like us who struggled with depression who struggled with identity. But understand this, what set him apart was that he was a man of prayer. James was a man of prayer. Church, let it be said of this little gathering that they are a church of prayer. Genuine, real. Because as we come to a close, my prayer is, is that A, God would establish in our hearts the coming of the Lord is at hand. That he would broaden our hearts and our minds to the kingdom perspective. And then he would reveal to us anything that is getting in the way that would hinder that work that he wants to do. And then this morning, we're going to go, those of you who are sick, maybe there's some of you with neck aches, headaches, knee aches, just belly aching. I don't know what your aching is, but come, receive prayer. There's some of you who habitual sin has shackled you. It's got you cornered. You've isolated yourself. It's time. God has given you this moment to come, confess your sin, that you may be whole again. Don't allow the enemy to rob you of the joy and the peace and the love and all that comes with those who press into the presence of Christ. Come, receive prayer, be anointed, and, and, and rejoice that at the end of this, as uh, we're led in worship, we can be like this one. Is any of you cheerful? Let us sing. Let's end this worship service in singing and praising God. But prior to getting there, let's get right with God. Let's rid ourselves of anything that would hinder the work of God. And I close with this, brethren, if any of you are wandering from the truth. God is saying to you, no more playing games. There's some in here this morning. You've wandered, you've strayed, you're in, you're out, you're up, you're down. God is saying, come. Be prayed for. Save your soul and the 
covering of a multitude of sins awaits you tomorrow. Be made whole today. Stop wandering. Get right. Get real with Christ today. Jesus, we pray that you would truly have your way with us this morning. We're trusting and believing in your sovereignty to have your way, that your spirit will come and reveal to us where we err and where we have strayed. We want to be aligned. We want to have that kingdom perspective. We want to join you in the mission of furthering the kingdom of God. And so as your people, Lord, we submit corporately, submitting ourselves to you to have your way. Precious Jesus, come Move amongst us. Just pray for those, Lord, who are plagued with the past, brokenness, whose sickness involves emotional damage. Lord, I pray you would bring them out, that they may receive healing, that they may be whole. We pray for our brothers and sisters this morning who are shackled in sin. Lord, release Come, move, we pray. In your name, amen.